0: Well, this morning we are going to return to the Gospel of Mark. If you're newer to our church, Pastor Stephen has been preaching through the book of Exodus. Well, I have been preaching through Mark. And we're going to pick up the story of Jesus' life today in chapter 12. We'll be in Mark, in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Mark 12, 13 through 17. And I invite you to navigate there with me in your Bibles or... Grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you, and it'll be on page 848 of those black pew Bibles. Well, it's been a, a few months since we were last in this book, so you should know that we have reached the final week of Jesus' life as we drop into Mark chapter 12. Uh, Jesus is nearing his death, and we'll see in our passage today that the opposition to Jesus was ramping up. It's different groups who are, were trying to trap him and find a way to uh, eliminate his influence. Would you stand with me as I read God's Word for us? All right. Mark writes in verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. May God bless the reading of his word. I invite you to be seated now. Well, we are no strangers to political controversy here in the United States. While the peak controversy levels of last year seem to have ebbed a bit, we have continued to see political differences rise to the surface. We've seen them in the recent gubernatorial elections in our country. We've seen them in the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. The differences are very present in the, the various reactions to vaccine mandates and abortion laws. They've been the source of much discussion in our federal government over infrastructure and social spending packages. We live in a democracy which contains no shortage of political controversy. And as Christians, it is often difficult to discern which side we should be on. Should we be for taxing the rich to provide housing for the homeless? Are vaccine mandates good for society, or do they impinge too much upon our personal freedom? Should we rein in big tech with more regulations, or should they have the ability to dictate what they feel is right as private entities? But even more fundamentally, how are we to live in a country which passes laws and proposes taxes that we might disagree with? As our country departs further and further from the Christian principles upon which it was founded, how should we relate to our government? How should we act as citizens when we live in a country that is more inclined to support the redefinition of one's gender than the right to defend one's biblical convictions? Should we just disengage? Should we pull our resources together, create our little Christian enclaves and subculture where we are insulated from the issues around us? Should we get enraged? Should we fight against the mandates and, and the dictates of our authorities? Should we just wait? Should we sit back and let the storm pass as it were and try to pick up the pieces when we can What is our responsibility as Christians today to our government? Well, Jesus gives the answer in our passage this morning. He was posed with a political quandary that others thought would be impossible for Him to untangle. But Jesus provided a response for the ages. He, he uttered what might be the most impactful statement on government ever proffered. He, he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's, that are God's. We are going to unpack that statement today because it contains the very keys for us to understand how we're to live under government in these political days. But first, let's consider what is happening at this point in Mark's Gospel. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus said, entered triumphantly into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna. This was the culmination of everything that Jesus had been doing in his ministry up to this point. Mark has shown us in action movie fashion the the many things that Jesus did to prove that he was the Son of God. And as he rode into Jerusalem on the Sunday before his death, there were great expectations for him. But it soon became very apparent that Jesus had not come to win political allies. He had not come to achieve political victory. Instead of forming a coalition of friends, Jesus began to further alienate those in power. He condemned the religious leaders of Israel for their handling of the temple. He condemned them for their lack of spiritual fruit. He warned them of what was coming for them. And at the beginning of chapter 12, he told a parable about tenant farmers, which revealed how they... The, the religious leaders would be condemned for their continual rejection of him. But they weren't interested in what he had to say. They just wanted Jesus gone. He was a nuisance to them. He was a threat to their way of life. Look at, look at verse 12 of chapter 12, right before our passage begins. It says, it says there, and "...they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people." For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. But when we get to verse 13, we learn that these leaders didn't leave him alone for long. They were intent on finding a way to trap Jesus and eliminate him without alienating the people who still crowded around him. Now, as we continue on in chapter 12, Mark records a series of Three confrontations with Jesus initiated by different people who represent the religious elite. Today, we'll just look at the first one, which deals specifically with the issue of taxes, but more broadly, the issue of how we should respond to government. As we look at this account, we find initially an unexpected pairing of political opposites in verse 13. An unexpected pairing of political opposites. Verse 13 says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So the the they in verse 13 is is the same they from verse 12 who were seeking to arrest Jesus. And it was the same group of people whom Jesus had directed the parable of tenants against. And verse 27 of chapter 11 tells us that this group consisted of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They represented the Sanhedrin, who were the ruling council of the Jews. And they decided to send a group to trap Jesus through something he might say. Now, what is particularly noteworthy about this group is that it was comprised of both Pharisees and Herodians, Uh, This was unexpected because these two groups were political enemies. Uh, Most of you are familiar with the Pharisees. They were conservatives. They were strict Jews who were committed to the Old Testament law. They had narrow interpretations. They were legalistic in their applications. But they were respected by the Jewish people because of their dedication to ritual purity. They were... Quintessential Jews. The Herodians, on the other hand, were likely more liberal. They weren't so much a religious group as they were a political party. Now we don't know as much about them, but some writings by Josephus and their name itself helps us to understand that they were supporters of Herod the Great and his descendants. Herod and his family were known as moderates. They tried to be friends with both the Jews and the Romans. While the the Pharisees disliked Rome and couldn't stand Herod for his capitulation to Rome, the Herodians stood on the opposite end of the spectrum. Pharisees on the right, Herodians toward the left. Pharisees anti-Rome, Herodians accommodating to Rome. They had little in common except for their common hatred of Christ. Though on opposite ends of the political spectrum, they found common ground on one issue. The the only other time the Herodians are mentioned in the Gospel of Mark is in chapter 3, verse 6, where they again had gotten together with the Pharisees to try to figure out how to destroy Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were afraid of what Jesus was going to do to their religious influence, and the Herodians were scared of what He would do to their political influence. So they decided to unite in opposition against him. And when they they put their minds together, they, they came up with a question that they thought would ensnare Jesus and lead to his demise. We see this in verse 14. And there we move from an unexpected pairing of political opposites to a loaded question of political consequence. In verse 14, we find a loaded question of political consequence. Mark writes, They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. People like these are called bootlickers, toadies. This is flattery at its worst. But there is truth to everything that they said. Jesus was true. And he didn't cater to the crowds. He, he did not look upon the outward appearance of others, but he judged fairly and he taught the way of God. The very fact that the Pharisees and Herodians would approach Jesus in this way speaks of the profound impression that Jesus made on many during his life. An honest person would have to acknowledge the integrity and, and the truth that Jesus lived by. Even though Jesus was their enemy, It was impossible for them not to notice the kind of man that he was. So their attempt to trap him was all the more sad. And they tried to do this when they asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Immediately, those around Jesus would have recognized the pickle that this put Jesus in. The issue of taxes, specifically the Kensen or the poll tax, was one of the most controversial issues of the day for Jews. It was a tax that was first imposed in 86. At that time, Judea became a province under the direct rule of the Romans. And this poll tax became the cause of a Jewish revolt. A man by the name of Judas of Galilee was adamantly against paying this tax, and he led a group to rebel against it. The historian Josephus writes that Judas called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and for putting up with mortal masters in the place of God. For him, it was a matter of allegiance to God. Now, Judas's rebellion was quickly quelled, but it continued to inspire other Jews, and it led to the formation of the Zealot Movement, which would eventually revolt against Rome in A.D. 66. And that revolt was the precursor for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70. And so, the fact that there is no temple in Jerusalem can be traced back all the way to this poll tax. This issue of taxes was more than just a a simple tax increase for these Jews. It was more than a, a little percentage bump in your tax bracket or a new assessment for some environmental mitigation fund that you might have to pay today. The issue of taxes that was presented to Jesus was tied to the issue of Roman rule. For many Jews, the idea of paying this poll tax was akin to abandoning God. To them, it meant turning their back on their national identity. It meant giving allegiance to the occupying pagan power that they despised. And if Jesus said yes to their question, he would alienate many loyal Jews. He'd be seen as a Roman sympathizer. But if Jesus said no, he would be lumped in with the Judases of Galilee. He would be another zealot. Another rebel that Rome needed to put put down. If Jesus showed even the slightest indication that he was against Caesar, there was no question that Rome would act. We saw what they were willing to do to him on the cross with no evidence whatsoever of wrongdoing. So if he publicly declared himself on the side of the Jewish nationalists here, he would surely be writing his death sentence. The Pharisees and Herodians had carefully crafted this question. They saw no easy way out for him. It was a loaded question. It would have put Jesus in an impossible position if he was out to try to curry favor with the people or the leaders of his day. It would have set back any political agenda that he might have tried to pursue. But we've seen already that that was never Jesus' priority. Uh, Ironically... Just as the Pharisees and Herodians had themselves said, Jesus didn't care about anyone's opinions, but rather was committed to teaching the way of God. And that led him to give perhaps the most impactful statement on government, governance ever made. An unlikely pairing of political opposites got together to pose a, a loaded question of political consequence. But they weren't ready for Jesus' stunning statement of political priority that comes next. We find a stunning statement of political priority in our remaining verses. Jesus wasn't a fool. He saw through their flattery. He knew they were being hypocritical. And so he called them out. And he said to them in verse 15, Why put me to the test?" Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, a denarius was a small silver coin issued by the Romans. It was roughly worth the wages of one day for a laborer. You can think of it almost like a hundred dollar bill. It was the required coin for paying taxes to the Romans in Judea. And it was imprinted with the image of Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor at the time. Now, archaeologists have found these coins with... The image of Tiberius Caesar on them. But they've also discovered that on the coins were the the Latin words translated Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back was the phrase pontificate, pontifex maximus, or high priest. So the denarius was a sacrilegious coin to a conservative Jew, It, it was an affront to God. In day-to-day life, the Jews could avoid using the denarius because there were alternative locally minted copper coins that didn't have any image on them. But for this particular government tax, they were forced to use the denarius. So not only was the the poll tax hard to bear politically, but the idea, idea of paying for it with a coin like this was extremely offensive religiously. It was... This particular coin that Jesus called for. And so they brought him one. And when he received it, Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and in inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus wanted the people to understand that this was Caesar's coin. It had his face and name on it. And in those days, coins were understood to be the property of the person whose picture and inscription were on them. The coin was Caesar's. Thus, it was right to ask for it back if he were to ask for it back and it was right for the people to pay taxes to him with it so jesus said to them render to caesar the things that are caesar's but he also said and to god the things that are god's remember that you have a higher calling you must give to god what is his as well, They marveled at him. Now let's spend a little time now to unpack that incredible last statement of Jesus. The first thing that I want you to notice in Jesus' response is that he called Christians to be good citizens. Christians are to be good citizens. Christians are to be good citizens. In saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus was affirming the legitimacy of human government. As Roman subjects receiving the benefits of Roman rule, Jesus said it was right for the Jews to pay their share back to the Roman government in the form of taxes. But this was a stunning answer to the people of Jesus' day. Because for the longest time, the Jews had lived under the paradigm that their only rightful authority was God himself. Israel was used to being a theocracy. But here Jesus was saying that it was okay and right to support a pagan Roman government. And in essence, Jesus was saying that governments do not have to acknowledge the God of Scripture to be legitimate. When he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he was saying that you can obey a non-Christian government and not be disobedient to God. That's because human government has roots in the very creation of man by God. Human government didn't simply arise because of oppressive and power-hungry leaders who came onto the scene of world history. Human government is not simply an evolutionary mechanism that has arisen to guide society. Human government is not rooted simply in economic necessity. Human government is a reflection of God's good plan to give man dominion in this world as his representatives from the very beginning. Human government is the outworking of God telling Adam in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and, and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God set in motion the mechanism for government when he delegated authority to man in the garden in every government since then whether pagan or godly has been a reflection of that delegated authority from god given to mankind for the good of mankind here in mark chapter 12 verse 17 jesus affirmed that and it's affirmed again in romans 13 the most comprehensive text on our relationship to government in the Bible. Okay, why don't you turn there, Romans 13. This is a helpful passage for us to look at together because it is so essential to understanding our political priorities. Especially if you are new to Christianity, this is a text that will help you tremendously to navigate your way through our politicized world. Okay, let me read some of that chapter for you. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So God has established governmental authority for our good. He's established it to restrain evil and to to judge right from wrong and to punish wrongdoers and to promote order and the well-being of society. And so we're to be subject to it, and if we resist, we will be judged for rejecting God's authority. And a practical application of this principle is to pay our taxes and honor our government officials. You can also go to 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, and you'll find Peter saying very similar things. Jesus and the apostles affirm the legitimacy of governments because from the beginning God has given Authority to mankind to rule. It is part of his good plan of creation. Even when it is not specifically Christian, it can still be good. And so the normal situation for Christian citizens is one of compatible loyalties rather than conflicting ones. As Christians, we are to be good citizens, we're to pay our taxes and obey laws. We're to pray for, for kings and all those who are in high positions. We're, we're to work for the good of others in our society. We're to advocate for what is right. We're to seek the welfare of those around us. That's, that's what Jesus, or God called his people to do when they were exiled in Babylon. They were to seek the welfare of that city, even though it was a sinful one and would eventually be condemned by God. As Christians, we are to actively pay and obey and pray. We're to work for the good of others. And here in our country, if you're a citizen, you also have the privilege of voting and participating in government. You get a say in how we are governed. You can protest and start a petition, and you can vote for leaders and policies. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's means that government is legitimate and our responsibility is to submit to its authority because it comes from God. Christians are to be good citizens. But let me also emphasize that Christians are to be good citizens even in bad situations. Christians are to be good citizens in bad situations. The Jews of Jesus' day were not in an enviable political situation they weren't a people with outsized influence or power. They had been subjugated by the Romans. And even though the Romans did a number of positive things, like providing a certain level of stability and peace and, and building roads and building public structures, the Jews didn't necessarily have it easy under their rule. They were persecuted viciously at times. They were victimized. They were taken advantage of. They were executed when they opposed the Romans. Yet Jesus didn't give the Jews a free pass to disobey. That means his followers today must also be good citizens, even if they live in ungodly governments. As Christians, we're exiles in this world. We can and should appreciate good government, but no earthly government is a Christian government that we can truly call home. We must endure even in bad situations as we await a day when Jesus will return and reign and bring his perfect governance to this world. In responding to the Pharisees and Herodians, Jesus essentially told them that Christians are to be good citizens and they're to be good citizens in bad situations. But Jesus didn't end his response there. He could have. He had already answered their question about paying taxes but Jesus continued on and in doing so he clarified where a christian's ultimate allegiance should be he made clear what our political priority should be well christians are to be good citizens christians are to be good christians above all else christians are to be good christians above all else Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And saying that, Jesus rejected the divinity of Caesar. While he did tell us to respect government, he makes it clear here that government isn't ultimate. Government cannot give us everything that we need. Only God can, and we belong to him. Just like a denarius was imprinted with the icon or the the likeness of Caesar and belonged to him, we are imprinted with the icon or the likeness of God. We are imprinted with the likeness of our creator and we belong to him. He is our ultimate authority. Uh, One writer has said, you must obey the government as long as you can, but you must worship God as long as you live. To obey the government as long as you can, but worship God as long as you live. Our duty to earthly authorities is limited, but our duty to God is not. We don't just owe Him our taxes. We owe Him all of our lives. And we'll see in a couple weeks in verse 30 that we're to love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Think of Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Babylon. Or the apostles who understood that government could be wrong when, in order to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. And so no human government demands our unqualified support because all human governments are corrupted by sin. And so we must leave room for civil disobedience because we have a higher authority when the authority of government clashes with the authority of God, then as Christians, we must choose to obey God. This happens when we are forced to do something that goes against God's commands, or it happens when we are prohibited from obeying one of God's commands. Our orientation should be toward obeying our government. But there may be a time for civil disobedience when our government is not oriented toward God. Now let's just have some real talk about the pandemic for a moment. Many Christians have claimed over the past year or so that our government went too far in some of its mandates and restrictions upon places of worship. Was there government overreach? Was it wrong for our government to effectively shut down churches? Was it was it right for some churches to disobey the government? In hindsight, though I don't think my vision is 2020 yet, even at, let's say, 2040, I would say yes. Even though there were many uncertainties about the severity and danger of the coronavirus, it was wrong for our government here in California to ban churches from meeting for as long as it did. Because it kept people from obeying God's command and not neglect gathering together. Now, I know our state was considering the the good of the public health, but I don't think you could say that they were adequately adequately considering the good of our public souls. And I'll admit that that wasn't clear for me in the moment, but it's clear to me now. Christians must gather and assemble to worship God and encourage one another. The Bible is clear about this. Hebrews 10.25. Even though I think our government has made some mistakes, as a pastor, I believe... I have as well. As a church, we were relatively slow to reopen, and there are some things that I wish we would have done differently so that we could be the church that God has called us to be. So has our government been wrong in this pandemic? Yes. Would it have been acceptable and right to disobey certain pandemic mandates relating to public worship of the church? I believe yes. But does our government still deserve our honor and obedience? Jesus would say a resounding yes. When the government makes decisions about whether the church can meet or what it can teach, we must obey God rather than men. But when the government makes rules that are merely inconvenient for us, we must render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I know we love our freedoms and rights here in America— but the Bible doesn't promise that kind of complete freedom to only do what we feel like doing. It, it calls us to submit to our earthly authorities. To wear a mask if you're asked to and pay your taxes. Cultivate a heart of submission because you trust in God's delegated authority rather than cultivating a mindset of rebellion because you love your personal rights. And remember that Jesus calls us to submit ultimately, to God himself. We, we must render to God the things that are God's. And, and I think that is a crucial reminder for some of you. Some of you have been great in recent months at rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You've been following every COVID mandate. You've been going above and beyond. You've limited your interactions with others. You've been extremely careful. You know all the latest news about vaccines. You know hospitalization counts. But I fear, I don't know for sure, but I fear that that pattern of living has kept you from being faithful as a follower of Christ. Yes, you should be a responsible citizen. Yes, you should love your neighbor and your family members, but don't forget to render to God what is His. He deserves your worship. He commands you to meet with other Christians. He he calls you to love others and evangelize. Don't just settle for being a Caesar-pleaser. Have you truly rendered to God what is His? Have you, have you given Him all of your life? Or, or has this pandemic caused you to, to hold on to it tighter for yourself? Every single one of us tends to have a little bit of Pharisee or Herodian inside of us. Some of you are like the Pharisees you're religiously conservative, you're committed to what you believe. You don't want the government to tell you what to do. You're you're sick of masks. You don't like vaccine mandates. And you joke about moving to Texas. That's you. You need to remember to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. As a follower of Christ, you are called to be a good citizen even in bad situations. Some of you are more like the Herodians. You want to keep the peace. You want to be liked by all. You're a diligent mask wearer. You're you're going to get the vaccine booster. You love how California has handled the pandemic. But perhaps your love for God isn't the same as it once was. You've taken a step back in your engagement at church. And if that's you, you need to know that Jesus calls you to render to God what is God's. As a follower of Christ, you are called to be a good Christian above all else. And yet, no matter how we're different, to whether we tend to be a Pharisee or a Herodian, the reality is that we, we share a common reality. It's that none of us will be able to render to God fully what He deserves. We can and should aim to give Him all our lives, but we will inevitably fail and yet that's why Jesus came. That's why He was there answering this question from the Pharisees and the Herodians about taxes in the first place. Jesus came to do some rendering Himself. He came to render to God the perfect life that God requires. And He came to die the substitutionary death that we deserved. He came not just to tell us to pay our taxes, but He came, us, came to save us from death and He calls us to live For God. To give Him what He deserves by living according to the new life that He offers through repentance and faith. The Pharisees and Herodians, they were trying to trap Jesus. But He was not one to be trapped. He responded to their questions about taxes with wisdom and skill and He helped us understand our proper relationship to government. We're to be good citizens. But more importantly... We're to be good Christian citizens. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Father, there are times like these when we Open your word, and we are confronted with words that speak to our reality and speak to what we are going through in this day and age. We thank you that Jesus provided ultimate clarity to us on how we should live and where our priorities should be. Oh, Father, we pray that you would unite us as a church around Christ and his word and his priorities. Some of us need to grow in giving to you what you deserve. And some of us need to grow in giving to Caesar or giving to our government what it deserves. Help all of us. You know, don't, help, don't, cut, help, don't let these differences divide us and cause us to distance ourselves from one another. But Father, as we pursue what your word says together, I pray that we would be united, united in Christ so that we might live for your glory. We pray these things in his name. Amen.